0: Praise the Lord, everybody, and welcome to our brand new study on the book of Revelation. Now, I had mentioned uh, this many, many months ago, and um, <clears throat> we're a little bit behind in putting everything together, and um, I'm praying because this, the time of my next oral surgery is going to fall right in during this teaching. So we're praying that everything's going to work out there and that we don't have to take a break from it for a while, but uh, whatever the case might be, God will bless us extremely, I believe, as we studied this great book. Now, it's somewhat of a daunting task for a couple of reasons. One reason is the sheer volume of material that there is to cover, and secondly, there are so many directions that you could go uh, in any study of end-time events or Bible prophecy of any nature. Now what I have done, uh, and will continue to do by the way, is uh, some ancillary subjects that stand kind of on their own, but are related to the book of Revelation, or part of the book of Revelation, and certainly part of end time events. Uh, We aired one of those not long ago, entitled The End From The Beginning. So there's messages like that, uh, that coincide and go along with this teaching, and so for this particular uh, series I think what I'm going to try to do is like a chapter by chapter but we may uh, spend a little more time in some areas than we do in others and then hopefully one of those ancillary messages will cover uh, those topics that we kind of briefly go over here and there's a reason that I'm doing that is because Uh, Like I said, there's just so many possibilities and so many directions in the realm of Bible prophecy. And and we just want to consider it uh, all in our hearts and in our spirits before we... uh, And I don't ever really get dogmatic on much of it. Now, there's certain things that we are dogmatic. There's certain things that are plain English, black and white. And here's the thing about the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is not a sealed book. Now you remember that the book of Daniel, Daniel was told to seal up the words of his book until the time of the end. And so the more and the more and the more that understanding of the book of Daniel has been uh, unveiled to us, we know we're getting closer and we're in the time of the end. Actually, I believe the time of the end started uh, with the early church. And we'll go into that a little bit. Uh, that might possibly be in an ancillary uh, subject or it might come up uh, during our study here. One thing we want to do for sure and for certain is to read the entire book of Revelation together. And so we will read every verse and then we will break them up into sections and do some teaching that I pray will be beneficial to all of us. So let's get started in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that's God's title for this book. You see, in most study Bibles, it would say the revelation of St. John the Divine. But God's title is, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and he signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand, and I'm going to start at the end of that first three verse section, and I'm going to say this about the word "keep those things." Uh, it, it, it implies several different things to us. First of all, we're going to be tremendously blessed as we read here and keep the words of the Book of Revelation, and the word "keep" there it refers to obedience to the book. Obedience to God, obedience to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, to uh, keep the Word of God, to do the right things and not do the wrong things, and all that you would associate with obedience. But it means a little more than that when it says, and keep those things that are written therein. It talks about hiding the Word of God in your heart. So we're keeping the things that are written in the book of Revelation hidden in our heart, we're meditating on it, we are gaining understanding. You see, the Word of God that gets into your heart gives you understanding. And so as we see the events of our world begin to unfold today, and we've got the book of Revelation hidden in our heart, hallelujah, and all of the Word of God, really, not just the book of Revelation, but the entirety of the Word of God, when it's hidden in one's heart, and when one meditates upon it, It shows us what in the world is going on out there when other people who don't know the Lord and don't have the word hidden in their heart, they're kind of unaware and blind to what's taking place in the world around about us. But the Christian is to be in the know. The book of Revelation was not a sealed book. In other words, God gave it to us to understand. The book of Daniel is no longer a sealed book, but it was sealed in his time. And as we got into the end times, which I believe started uh, with the ascension of Christ um, and the early church time period, was the very beginning of the times of the end. And there's reasons for that. Uh, I'll get into that later. But um, Daniel was opened, and Revelation has always been open as it was given to the Apostle John. Now, I believe personally, and many Bible scholars do as well, that um, the book of Revelation was written by John the Beloved, and it was, it was probably written, most likely written, uh, during the latter portion of Domitian's reign, uh, basically 95 or 96 A.D., And Domitian was persecuting the Christian community and his favorite thing to do was send them out into exile. So hence we have John writing the epistle from exile on the Isle of Patmos. Uh, Patmos is a rock quarry island about 6 miles wide, 10 miles long, something like that. It's approximately 25 miles off the coast of Asia Minor. It's due west of Miletus, so if you're studying the Bible... Uh, You can get an idea, or if you've been there, praise God. And this was an ideal place to confine political prisoners, which John actually was. It's it's probable that the Apostle John uh, labored in those rock quarries alongside of the rogues and the slaves of the empires. He was treated as a common criminal simply for his testimony of Jesus Christ. And it was amidst this tremendous persecution and all of these agonies and pains that the Lord was uniquely revealed to John, uh, the apostle. So the object and purpose of the book of Revelation is simply to reveal and make known the things that must shortly come to pass. Now, the translation of the word shortly is used by John in the same sense that Paul uses this very word in his promise to the church in Romans 16 and 20, where there is an eschatological statement and a promise. See, These are promises that Satan would ultimately be bruised. We talked a little bit about that in the message on the end from the beginning both in Romans and in Revelation. This particular Greek word means certainly. So when it says the thing that must shortly come to pass, it doesn't mean like in two hours, or in two days, or two weeks, or two months, or even two years. In this case, it hasn't even meant in two millennia. The word actually means certainly. These things will certainly come to pass. The visions John saw gave a certainty about the future even though almost 2000 years have passed and it also means in that word shortly that when the events begin to transpire when they begin to happen when, when, when this begins to take place in whatever point of history we are in it will take place in rapid succession and most of this book takes place within seven years And the exception, of course, here is the introduction and then uh, the church age, which chapters 2 and 3 cover. There are seven blessings recorded in the book of Revelation. And I'm going to give these to you and I'm going to tell you where you can find them here at the beginning of our study. Verse 3 gives us the first one. Blessed is he that readeth and heareth and keepeth the words written in this book. Okay, basically, I'm paraphrasing it, and you can look back up at it. Uh, We read it earlier. And this one emphasizes the utmost importance of the Word of God. Reading, hearing, and keeping this prophecy. Now, the second blessing mentioned in the book of Revelation stresses the blessings of eternal life, for all those who die in the Lord. And that's Revelation 14, 13. In Revelation 16, 15, the blessedness and the enviable status of those watching and keeping their garments and anticipating the Lord's return is mentioned. The fourth blessing is the delight of those at the marriage supper of the Lamb and the great joy <clears throat> that there will be in Christ's presence, Revelation nineteen nine. Deliverance from death and the blessedness of participating in the first resurrection is the fifth blessing we find in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 6. The joy of obedience to God's word. You know all the struggles that we've had sometimes to obey the scripture when we've wanted to do something different. But there is great blessing and great joy in obedience to the word of God. And the heeding of this prophecy brings a blessing with it according to Revelation chapter 22 verse 7. And the final blessing in the book of Revelation speaks of the happy results that we will receive as a result of washing our robes and having access to the tree of life and the assurance of eternal sustenance in Revelation twenty-two, fourteen. 14. So that brings us to the next section of our reading uh, in the book of Revelation, verses 4 through 6. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. Now let me back up just a moment as, as I think I've missed this part. The Revelation... And the apocalypse are the same thing. They both come from the Greek word apocalypsis, meaning to uncover, to unveil, to reveal. And God reveals what's going to happen in the future only to his children, only to those who are followers of Christ. So John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, he says, Grace be unto you and peace from him which is, which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our own sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests unto God. Praise God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever. And ever. John is addressing these seven churches. He's talking about there's a personal relationship between John and these churches, and he makes a statement. He says, from him which is and which was and which is to come, and this of course is referring uh, to God the Father. God the Father. God is a spirit. He is infinite. He is eternal. He is unchangeable in his being, unchangeable in His wisdom and power and holiness, unchangeable in His justice and His goodness and His truth. Throughout this book of Revelation, God is seen as sitting on the throne. Hallelujah. It's a literal throne, by the way. Uh, Here's here's a rule uh, for Bible prophecy interpretation that I think we would do well to remember. And I wrote it down here, so let me get to it. Uh, exactly how i want to say it we need to give the same meaning of the words of prophecy that are given to words of history because prophecy is just really history ahead of time okay it's history in reverse so to speak um we give the same meaning give the word its basic and true meaning Simply because we're studying the book of Revelation and Bible prophecy doesn't mean that it always has a mystical meaning and cannot be understood in a literal sense. Okay, Now there are times when we're going to understand when something is literal and when something is mystical. And it's going to be rather obvious uh, in the context which it is written. The throne of God pictured in the book of Revelation is a literal throne. It is a literal throne. God is the center. God is the center, sitting upon His throne. He is the center of all the actions of the book of Revelation. Also it says... um, from the seven Spirits which are before His throne. Now there are not seven Holy Spirits. The word seven in this connection denotes spiritual perfection and completion. It represents the fullness of the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is represented in this passage in a threefold way. First, as the faithful witness referring to his ministry on earth. He's also referred to uh, as the first begotten of the dead. Uh, Thirdly, he's called the prince of the kings of the earth, and prince here means ruler, just like it does in the book of Daniel, chapter 10, verses 13 through 20. So there's three things in verses Uh, the end of verse 5 and the first part of verse 6 that John is telling us here. First of all, Jesus loves us. And that's really the central theme of the entire Bible. For God so loved the world, amen, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal and everlasting life. So Jesus loves us. Whole chapters of the Bible are devoted to God's love. God's word from Genesis all the way through to Revelation expresses God's love. God is not a dictator or a despot creating problems and difficulties in this world. Listen to this. Sadness, sorrow, sickness, and disgusting and evil things are not the work of God. He's not doing these things. Satan is at work in those things. God is love and he loves us. Okay, I want you to look uh, later on when you uh, get a chance. Read John 3.16. Read Romans 5, 8 and 9. Read 1 John chapter 3. And read 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. The second thing that's mentioned in this scripture about Jesus is that He has washed us from our sins with His own blood. And that goes back again to why we believe so strongly in the message of the cross in this ministry. Because it's all about Jesus, and it's all about the cross, and it's all about the blood of Jesus. If he had not washed us from our sins with his own blood, because it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from our sins, we would never get to heaven. Many of you listening at me right now need to realize that you will never get to heaven until you have your sins washed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus. This is not a physical washing, but a spiritual washing. I want you to read Matthew 26, 27, and 28. Uh, 20, chapter 26, verses 27 28. Romans 3, verse 25. Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 14. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, and 1 John 1 and 7. And thirdly, it says that Jesus made us. And this refers to the work of recreating us in regeneration, being born again. And so I'm going to take a little bit of time right here before we get to our next section. I'll say it in a moment. And say that the the justification by faith that Jesus purchased for us with his own blood. And the sanctification process that we enter into as believers is all a part of this remaking and and being conformed to the image of Christ and regeneration from the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit and the Son and the Father always work in tandem with each other. And in the book of Revelation, we see that over and over and over again. We become new creatures in Christ. It's said in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, that He makes us to become pillars in the temple of God as we live for Him, as we love Him, and as we worship Him. He molds us, He sculptors us And so we understand the importance of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now that brings us to verses 7 and 8. And it says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is, which was. which is to come. So now this, behold he cometh with clouds, is referring to the second coming of Jesus Christ, and it's the main theme of the book of Revelation. The events that involve the seals, trumpets, vials, and other things in the plan of God are preparatory to Christ's coming. The coming of Jesus Christ is announced three times in the book of Revelation. It's announced at the beginning here in verse 7 of chapter 1, in the middle of in chapter eleven, verses fifteen through eighteen, and at the end of the prophecy in Revelation twenty two twenty, the second coming of Jesus is referred to many times in the book, and it is vividly described in Revelation nineteen eleven through sixteen. The word for see in Revelation one seven is not the ordinary word that we use to look on something. The word here means to gaze or to stare with wide open eyes at something that is so remarkable or something so absolutely horrifying to the beholder producing fear, hatred, or reverence. Whatever the case might be. Jesus is coming back again and he will be crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And to those uh, who were saved during the tribulation, and made it past all the persecutions of the Antichrist to those who are actually there in that moment of his second coming his Armageddon coming remember I told you in some teachings that there's the rapture coming and the Armageddon coming the second coming is actually in two phases the rapture which takes place uh, before the tribulation we'll get to that in a little bit in much greater detail plus we have some ancillary messages on the rapture as well and then there's the Armageddon coming, which is being referred here too, where it says, Behold, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him. So, <clears throat> this, this basically tells us that those who love the Lord, when they see Him, they are filled with reverence. Hallelujah. They're filled with awe of His beauty and His glory and His majesty. And those who see Him, who have rejected Him, and cursed Him, and mocked Him and forsaken Him, when they see Him, they are filled with fear and hatred at the sight of His majesty. We serve a mighty Christ. A mighty Christ. Jesus is saying here in these verses that He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He claims equality with the Father in eternity in his state of being, power, and in lordship. Hallelujah. This is stated irrevocably in Revelation 1 4, Revelation 4 8, Revelation 11.17, 17, 15 3, 16 7, and verse 14. Uh, uh, Revelation 19.6 and 15, Revelation 21.22. In these passages, the Greek word Pantocrator is used. And it's a title of God as Creator and expresses His relationship to all of creation and His power over His works. It's translated many times, Almighty. In Revelation 19.14, Panto Crator is translated Omnipotent. Christ is also the creator of all things. Revelation 3.14, Ephesians 3.9, Colossians 1.15. Jesus is the Alpha, the Omega. Jesus is the beginning and the end. And these words that are very expressive denote eternity and authority. And so, I want to make a little comment here before we go to our next reading section. If you study closely the book of Revelation, and you'll have to do this on your own, because, I, listen, if I tried to bring out just every little nuance that we find in studying the great book of Revelation, we would be here studying Revelation for 20 years and still wouldn't have scratched the surface. So for the time that I have to bring this material to you, I would just encourage you to study the book of Revelation on your own using a variety of resources and understand that in the book of Revelation every major Bible doctrine can be seen present and illustrated in the book. And that's phenomenal. Every single point of theological concern is represented in this one book of the Bible. Let's read verses 9 through 11. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the Isle of Patmos, For the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, unto Thyatira, unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And we're going to briefly talk about each of those seven churches in coming lessons. So here we have a brief account given to us of John and his relation to the seven churches in Asia. He was a fellow partaker in the tribulation. Now, that that, that word makes me want to stop and explain this briefly uh, to you here. This is referring to a persecution tribulation. Many people have that in the world today. Then that we also have life tribulations in all of our lives as we journey through planet earth. Neither is referring to the great tribulation. At the time that John wrote this, and I'm going to get to the division of the book in just a moment, but at the time that John wrote the book of Revelation, people who were following Christ we're experiencing life tribulation and persecution tribulation. Okay? The great tribulation, he receives the revelation of in a little bit from now, and it was futuristic. And we'll, we'll touch on that in just a moment. So there is a difference. And when that word tribulation is used, people sometimes have a tendency to insert things where they uh, don't belong. In this time frame where John was writing to these churches they were enduring and undergoing severe persecution by the Roman emperors. John was banished to the Isle of Patmos Um, and here on the Lord's day he was quickened by the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit brought this revelation and saw things which would shortly come to pass. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, which may actually mean the first day of the week, the day of the Lord's resurrection. And we can can pretty well say that based on Matthew 28, 1, John 20, 19, Acts 20, and verse 7, and 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. It appears clear that Christians set apart the first day of the week for worship. And the expression, Lord's Day, came to be used during This time that John was writing this book, in 95 or 96 A.D., uh, as a day set apart to worship Jesus. Hallelujah. And there's every reason to believe that the church used this word as a protest against Caesar worship. So they used the phrase, the Lord's Day, which was contrasted against the Romans' phrase, the Augustian Day. And the Augustian day in the old Roman Empire was a day set aside to honor Caesar worship. Okay, now this begs the question here, what about Saturday? What about the old Jewish Sabbath? And I'm going to answer it briefly because we cannot do a detailed study on all of these things, but let me just say that the old Jewish Sabbath of Saturday keeping is not incumbent upon Christian believers. The reason being, the Sabbath is no longer a day. Since the cross, the Sabbath is no longer a day. The Sabbath is a person, Jesus Christ. So He is our rest. He is our Sabbath. Oh, hallelujah. And He is the one whom we worship. And in order to protest uh, Augustian Day, the early church began to worship on what they called the Lord's Day, which was... Sunday the first day of the week the day that the Lord resurrected from the dead okay so now our next section is Revelation chapter 1 verses 12 through 18 and so let's read that together and I turned to see the voice that spake with me and being turned I saw seven golden candlesticks And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like undefined brass, as if they had burned in a fire furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters, and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength, and when I saw him I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last, I am he that liveth and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen, and have the keys of hell and death. And so in this passage, we see a few things. And I'm going to try to just simplify this um, without doing a, a lot of extra teaching. But I would encourage you to do word studies on this. Um, we are seeing in this section a picture of what Jesus Christ looks like now. This is the picture of the resurrection uh, of the resurrected, the ascended, glorified, crowned Christ. Hallelujah. Now listen, when Jesus comes back to earth the second time without sinner, without sin. Let me see how to phrase this. When he comes back the second time, he won't be paying for sin. Jesus never sinned, right? When he went to the cross, he was a sinless sacrifice. He never sinned. He's coming back next, not as the bleating Lamb of God. He's coming back next Roaring as the lion of the tribe of Judah. A mighty warrior. The, the, the Lord of heaven's armies. In his second coming. And we're going to go a little bit more into some of the distinctions between the rapture coming and the Armageddon coming in the near future. But here we're referring to the second coming without sin unto salvation. Jesus is coming back. Again, hallelujah and he will not be beaten and spit upon and mocked and cursed he will come back king of kings and lord of lords in that hour praise god praise god praise god now this positions this shows um that Christ is in the midst of the seven churches. He is, in fact, the head of the church. His ministry now is in heaven as our great high priest sitting at the right hand of the Father. And there's eight characteristics that you can see of Jesus there uh, in that section. Now, it says that He had in His right hand seven stars. Take a look at Psalm seventeen seven and Psalm 20, verse 6, and also Isaiah 41, 10, and 48, 13. Christ is pictured here as upholding the ministry of the church. Okay? And then, in the next expression, it says, Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, the destructive power of the Word of God is pictured here. You see, we we as believers... I heard Lester Summerall say this just the other day in a DVD that we were watching. As Christians, we just totally get to relate to the Lamb of God. Amen? Jesus is constantly touching us with His great love and His great mercy and and His compassion toward us and His forgiveness and His long-suffering. Praise the Lord! but for those who are his enemies, they see the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's what Brother Summerall said. It struck me in my heart because as we look at this here, it says the destructive power of the Word of God is evident as a sharp two-edged sword. And that sharp two-edged sword for a Christian is constructive. Why is that? Because the one edge of the sword works against our spiritual enemies as we use the Word of God and have faith in it and stand out in our daily lives. And the, others, the other side of that two-edged sword trims things out of our life that shouldn't be there, that displeases the Lord as the Holy Spirit works within us to conform us to the image of Christ. So for the Christian, the power of the Word of God is constructive, but for the world, for the Christ rejecters, for the God-haters, for those who are in rebellion, it is a destructive power. And when God speaks a word of judgment, it most certainly will come to pass, and it has explosive power attached to it. And we don't ever want to forget that as we study the book of Revelation. What kind of effect must this vision have had upon John? I mean, this think about it. These things that John is seeing totally new to him. He had seen Jesus in the days of his flesh, and he walked with him for three and a half years. He had seen the great miracles done by the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet there was a tremendous fear that came upon him when he saw the Lord Jesus Christ in this particular state. I want to tell you, my dear friends today, that the presence of the Son of God is awe-inspiring. Jesus is alive. He has authority over death. He has conquered death, hell, and the grave. The word Gehenna is usually translated hell. There are other words, though. The word used in this text is Hades, which generally refers to the realm of the dead. Jesus is victor over the grave, over death, over hell. Jesus has complete authority over the realm of the dead. Hallelujah. And finally, in this lesson today, it brings us to the divisions and the symbols of the book of Revelation. And let's read together. Revelation 1 verses 19 and 20 Write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. Okay, Now that is your division of the book of Revelation. The things which thou hast seen that was John's time uh, including his walking with the Lord Jesus Christ including all of the history that he knew, the things which thou hast seen. Secondly, the things which are, that deals with the churches, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And then, the things which shall be hereafter. And then the scripture says, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, that word angel right there actually means messengers, and it does no violence to the scripture to say the pastors of the seven churches, the messengers of the seven churches. It could include the fivefold ministry voices speaking into the seven churches. Okay? And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. And so, pastors and fivefold ministry leaders must lead the way in manifesting Christ in today's darkened world. And as we close this first lesson on the book of Revelation, And what a study it has been. Next we will enter into the time frame of the things which are, which means uh, the seven churches of of Revelation. But let me encourage you today as a believer to, to lead the way with your life, with your activities, with the things you allow yourself to engage in. Run the whole gamut of Christian experience and lead the way in this dark generation that we're living in of pointing people to Christ. Reflect Christ in your behavior, in your thoughts, in your words, in your actions, in your deeds, and most importantly, in your love. The Bible says they will know that we have passed from death unto life. If we have love for the brethren, they will know us by our love. And so as we stand for truth and as we represent Jesus in this darkened time, let us do so with the love of God that compels us and motivates us to reach the lost at any cost, any sacrifice, anything that we might have to give up in order to reach people for Jesus. It's well worth it if one soul comes to Christ. It's well worth it if one soul gets born again by the message that we preach. And there's many different ways of preaching. As I said, you preach with your life. You preach with your actions and your thoughts and your deeds and your love. And you also preach with Word. And we never compromise sin. We're going to look at that when we study these churches and we're only briefly going to study them. Again, I encourage you to gather some material on your own, some commentaries on the book or whatever the case might be and study in, in greater detail than we're going to be able to do here. But as we reach out to others, let's win them to Jesus. and Let's pray like we've never prayed before for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God because these are the things that must shortly come to pass the time is at hand. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time of teaching today. God, I pray that you will put your anointing upon it. Father God, open hearts to receive what's been said here today. And God, we give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. And everybody would say, Amen and Amen.